Hi, this is Media Girlfriends, and I'm the Nava Duncan. This podcast is about my girlfriends who work in the media. We choose one main topic, but we always talk about more. This episode is with a girlfriend of a girlfriend. Her name is B. Kwame, and I met her through Namageni Kiwanuka. B started out in the healthcare sector in Toronto, but she's changed her career by becoming a blogger and a freelance writer. I got to know her on Twitter, where she talks about feminism and race and being a black woman and raising a black child. Sometimes she tweets in Jamaican Patois, which is totally authentic because that's her heritage and she's not like me in high school just copying what other people were saying. And she also quotes great lyrics from great hip-hop songs. And I can always count on B to have a well-thought-out opinion, um, especially after a major pop culture event like the movie Moonlight winning the Oscar after it's mistakenly given to La La Land or something like that. Anyway, um, more recently, B has been doing some work on television, like at the beginning of February when she weighed in with an opinion about Black History Month on CBC's The National. And her opinion was that she thinks it's time for Black History Month to go. There is no benefit to treating Black history like something that goes stale by March 1st, because Black Canadian history is Canadian history. Black Canadian history is Canadian history. Mm -hmm. So your point was we should celebrate it all year. What was the response to the piece? So the response was so varied. And I have to say about 85% was positive, I have to say, um, where people either totally agreed with what I was saying and Mm -hmm. what they got through my message, or they learned something and got a different way of thinking about things. And they appreciated that kind of wake up call to think about things a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the positive messages I got. There were obviously the blatantly racist, sexist, I can't believe the national wasted two minutes on, you know, this whatever, whatever. Okay, so you did get that. Oh yeah, definitely got that type of stuff. and are you used to that kind of comment because I'm, of your blog? Yeah. You, oh, yeah. Okay. I'm used to the hate mail. I'm used to trolls on Twitter. This was a different realm, though, I think, because it was such a huge platform that it seemed to just come from all over. And it was at such, like, it just happened all at once. This thing aired, and it was like my Twitter started going off, my emails were going off, my Instagram messages were going off, my Facebook messages were going off. Mm-hmm. And because the show airs at different times, then there'd be like waves. Right. So people who didn't catch it at nine o'clock caught it at 10 and then it started all over again. And people right. who didn't catch it at 10 caught it at 11 and people who caught it on YouTube the next day, it was just like... So does that mean things. then you were getting waves of the hate plus waves of, of the, the positive? positive. Exactly. Mm. And the other interesting thing that I didn't expect as a response were the people who emailed me thinking that now I have some type of like magic power that I can solve issues that are happening all across the country. So getting emails from people in like BC and Hamilton and all over the place who have different issues that they think if I put my name behind it, it's going to go somewhere. People want me to write letters to their city council for stuff. People wanted me to help fix Black History Month in small towns in Ontario and Oh, wow. I was just like, you know, I'm not like the Canadian Black History Month expert that I travel around to fix everything. But sure, it was but you were on the national. Well, I was. Yeah. I was. So people were like, okay, so she must be able to do something for us. Yeah. So there were a lot of those kind of 
can you help with this? Can you write a letter? If, can I say that you, you know, support what I'm doing? Can, oh, wow. Like, your name means something now, which I totally did not expect that type of a response mm. as far as the way people perceive when you have that type of platform and you're given access to that type of platform. So what way. kind of answers did you? Well, you know, there was one girl who emailed me from Hamilton and she basically kind of was like, you know, I really want Black History Month in Hamilton to be better. Can you help me? Mm. And I was like, well, I don't know what Black History Month is like in Hamilton to begin with. So I asked some questions and I gave her some tips as far as what do you think is missing? Maybe that's where you need to start if you're feeling there's a gap. Maybe there's not enough youth events or maybe there's not enough events in general, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, think about where those gaps are and see what you might be able to do or somebody else who does events might be able to do to fill those gaps. But I don't know enough about Hamilton to be able to tell you how right. to make it better. I mean, that sounds pretty helpful. I hope so. I hope it was. I know I can't help everybody. and But you do your best. Yeah, and exactly. I, I find it interesting that you mentioned um the girl in Hamilton, because mm-hmm. you were in a small town learning about Black History Month, too, yes. in London. Yes. And I want to know about your first experience with Black History Month. Yeah. So growing up in London, Ontario was very interesting. And I have so much love for it. And there's things that I can appreciate so much more now about London now that I've left. Mm-hmm. But being there was a different circumstance. And at the time when I was growing up there, it was not very diverse I was pretty much like the only black kid in my school until my brother came three years later. And then there was the two of us. Wow. So it was... In how, like how many people? Um, you know what? I went to a lot of different... I went to a bunch of different schools. Okay. Um, but they were Pretty like, sizable. Okay, yeah, pretty yeah. sizable schools. And so the first thing that I can recall sticking out in my mind about Black History Month is I'd be, you know, in public school doing my thing. I'm in class and teachers asking us questions, whether it's math or it's English or it's history, and I would raise my hand to answer the questions. And sometimes the teacher would answer me, sometimes the teacher wouldn't answer me, even if nobody else had their hands up. So I remember going home one day really upset because that day I had been really engaged, and I just remember my teacher looking at me with my hand up and going to somebody else who didn't even want to answer the question and thinking, why are you ignoring me? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm answering the question. I want to speak. I want to give the answer. And you're looking me in my eye and then passing off to somebody else. So I went home and I told my parents and I was really upset. And because of the demographics of the school and because my parents are very sensitive to what's happening with their, you know, one black child who's in this school mm-hmm. and there had been other issues before, they set up an immediate meeting with my teacher and said, basically, what's going on? Because she's coming home upset that she has her hand up and you're not picking her. Is it because she's black? Like, what is it? Did they straight up ask her? Oh, my, my mom did. My mom did. Okay. She she's very direct. Okay. She doesn't waste time. So excellent. <laughs> yes, she, me. I'm like sometimes it happens, and I'm like, mommy, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to do that, but it's okay. But it gets the job done. Yeah. So I just remember my teacher being so horrified, and he was like, "That is not it at all." He's like, "I'm so sorry that she feels that way." And I remember being in the room because my parents were like, "We want you to be in this discussion," mm-hmm. and so he apologized profusely to me, and he said. The reason why I'm doing it is because she always knows 
the answer. She always has her hand up. And I have to try to get other kids engaged mm-hmm. uh, because she's always the one that has the answer. And the other kids know she always has the answer. So they don't even bother to raise their hands because they're just looking at her to raise her hand and answer. And you had no clue about that. I had no clue. You're just I, like, just I just like, know the answer I and I love know. this stuff. Exactly. And I'm so excited. I love school. And right. I'm just like, you know, Cute so nerd. exactly. Yeah. I was such a nerd. And I was just like, I love it. Yeah. So yeah. can I just say what I have to say? Yeah. And so he explained that to me and to my parents. And so there was a discussion about... I felt about, bad just now. I yeah. want to admit to something. Yeah. I just felt bad right now calling you a cute little nerd because I actually... No, no, no. Yeah, why? Let's talk about this just yeah. for a second. Because, yeah. like, because the word nerd actually does have a little bit... It does have some negative connotations. Mm. Mm-hmm. My husband and I talk about this sometimes yeah. because why can't it just be that you were just a smart kid? Or, right. or, or even if you were a boy, like... A nerd, I don't know. Anyway, we can no, t- that true. could be a whole that other could be conversation. Another thing. But I just yeah. want to acknowledge that true. that term can be bad, and I didn't mean it. Yeah, no, anyway. no, totally. You're so yeah. right. It can be loaded, and yeah, even totally when you don't loaded. mean it. But yeah. So anyway, yeah. you were this really smart kid, and exactly, uh, and he was saying that's why. So what happened after that? So there was a discussion of do we skip her up a grade so she can be challenged? And my parents didn't want that because they're like, we want her to be with the kids her age and not have to adjust to something different. Mm-hmm. So. The school was like, okay, we'll put her in kind of a special program. So certain periods of the day, she'll go to the library and work on some special projects and just do different things to keep herself engaged because she's obviously not engaged enough in in class with everybody else. So February rolls around (laughs) and I am given a project because it's Black History Month Mm -hmm. to do a research project and a presentation on black history and however I want to do it. If I want to pick one person to talk about, if I want to pick different people, mm-hmm. however I want to do my Bristol board, you know. <laughs> How old are you at this point? Is this like eight? Nine? Yeah, this is like, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah this is eight, almost nine. And uh, so, yeah, so I was given this project to work on in my special mm-hmm. little library program. And I didn't think anything of it. I was excited. I was like, this is going to be so great. Mm-hmm. I get to do research. I get to talk about other people who look like me and look like my parents and get to you tell. You thought that? Yeah, it was. I remember at a very young age thinking about representation wow. and thinking about people who look like me, people who don't look like me. Mm-hmm. Um, living in London, we would go to Detroit all the time, especially mm-hmm. in the summer when school was out, because there were like no black hairdressers. So we'd either come to Toronto or right. Detroit to get our hair done yeah. and shop and whatever. And whether we went to Detroit or Toronto, it would be amazing for me to see other black people just walking around doing stuff. In the grocery store, because I didn't see that at home unless it was my family that I happened to run into at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So representation was a big thing for me. So I remember thinking about that and thinking, just having this feeling of it will be so cool for me to be able to show my friends history that really matters to me. Mm -hmm. I remember we had done this huge medieval segment of history and we talked about all these European kings and queens and other friends whose backgrounds are Scottish and Irish and British were so proud because they were bringing in family crests and kilts and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. So when I was given this project, I was like, wow, now I get to say something. Mm-hmm. So did this whole project, did the research, did my Bristol board, did my presentation. Phenomenal. It was fabulous. And I was so proud of myself. And... I didn't think about it at the time, but later on, I remembered my teacher sitting in the audience with the rest of the kids, and the look on his face was like he was learning just as much as 
everybody else was learning. So it wasn't just the third graders learning. <laughs> he was learning. Mm. And it was later on in life when, you know, going through school and February coming around. And like I said, growing up in London, being one of the few black kids and, you know, maybe the only one in my class or the few in the school and kind of, you know, it's February. So let's point at B and say, B, can mm. you do something for us? Because you're the black one. So mm -hmm. maybe you'll be able to put something together. And later on, like in high school, thinking about it, like, but you're the teacher. Like, why don't you know this stuff? Nobody right. else has to come and teach any lesson plan yeah. during the year. But February rolls around and I'm teaching a lesson plan and giving it you know, this prestige of it being something special. Mm -hmm. And it was later on I thought about that time in grade three, even though it was a great experience for me and it was very positive, thinking about the fact that, wow, these teachers probably have no clue what they're doing either. Mm -hmm. And it's just easier to say, well, okay, luckily we've got a black student. Mm -hmm. So let's give her this special project. And they can even, in a way, make themselves feel good that I am um, empowering this child. Exactly. So there is that side of it, which right. I understand. Right. But at the same time, there's still... You can you could use that to hide behind the fact that you don't know anything. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know what? We can blame them, but we can also blame the system, which of is that, um, mm -hmm. you know. If it's not provided in right. curriculum, then right, what right. are they supposed to do? Yeah. Which is a discussion I've had with other teacher friends and all that kind of stuff. Because my husband actually is an ECE. So mm. he works um, with young kids at a daycare. And I remember going into his classroom one time and seeing on the wall, like it was Black History Month, but it was all American, you mm. know, figures. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, do you guys, like, you don't put any Canadian black history up? Like, you're in Toronto. Why Why is it all American all the time? Right. And he said, this is what they send us. This is the package that we get. So he, the next year, he remembered my comments, and he did some extra stuff to kind mm -hmm. of put pictures of different Canadians up there. Mm -hmm. But that opened my eyes to realize, okay, if our curriculum is not even supporting this, and the teachers need to do that extra work in order to kind of create a well-rounded program. I understand now why it was easier in my experiences just for them like, to say, Here, hey, you do it. Exactly. Especially since you have the vim and the vigor for it. And right? I was excited right. about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So how did your, your experience with Black History Month uh, evolve after that? Like mm -hmm. what happened in university? Yeah, so university, I stayed in London. University was supposed to be my ticket out of London, but... Nobody was ready for me to leave the house yet. Dry. Yeah, I know. I okay. was the oldest of three, and it was like, you can. You're my baby. You oh, can't they leave. literally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. it was like, no, you can't. You can't leave. Which um, um, worked okay. out well. It's yeah. okay because yeah. I went to Western, and Western Western was amazing. I loved it there, and Western was on the other side of the city from where I live, so it felt like I was out of town anyway every time I went up to Western. I remember so, going to Western for yeah. their Black History Month event. Yeah, it, like they were. Amazing. Yeah, they were live. They were live. Like, yeah. So I loved Western. And what really shifted for me was being able to meet so many people from not just people from Toronto and other parts of Canada, people from the Caribbean, people from different countries in Africa who all came to Western. Yeah. And I'm meeting tons of black people and black people who have different perspectives on blackness and how it is at home, how it is when they're here in Canada. And it was just such a richness of conversation and discussion and debate and disagreement and all that kind of stuff that just made, it, it just kind of blew my mind to mm. just 
be able to kind of step out of what I had always known and just discussions I'd had within my own family to now having conversations with peers of mine mm-hmm. who all have different perspectives. And yeah, so we would go all out for Black History Month and there would be so many different events discussion events. Uh, we had an event called Soul, which was like our gala that we would go to and you get dressed up and there's dinner and there's performances and all kinds of stuff that we would do. And so how Black History Month evolved for me at that time was it became a real idea of a celebration. Mm-hmm. In university, we were celebrating. We were taking over the student UCC Student Center and doing different presentations or having performances like right in the middle, like while everybody's eating their lunch and mm-hmm. studying, doing whatever. So it was in your face. We didn't let it be something that was shelved off in a right. certain corner of the campus. It was embedded into campus life. And it was a true celebration. So that's when I was thinking about Black History Month is, wow, this is where, like, this feels so good to me to be able to celebrate my blackness and celebrate other people's blackness and whatever that means for them. Mm -hmm. Because since we had so many people who came from different places, everybody wanted to bring a little bit something different Mm -hmm. of whatever they had or whatever their experience was, bring a little bit of home to, to Western and all that kind of stuff. So it became a real idea of celebration, which was very different from this kind of forced education, whether it was me teaching everybody Mm -hmm. or if it was, you know, it's February. So every Monday we'll make an announcement, you know, in the morning announcements and we'll tell you about a special figure in black history and nobody's listening during the announcements. And so it totally shifted that, okay, black history month can look like something totally different and we can be in charge of that Mm -hmm. and we can make it look and feel the way we want it to look and feel. It was so much fun. It was so much fun and enlightening. We did learn stuff. We did find ways to incorporate different pieces of education. But what I remember is just that idea of celebration Mm -hmm. and celebrating in different ways and learning about different people's cultures and different people's experiences through what they brought to Mm -hmm. their understanding of Black History Month as well. So it just totally broadened my horizons as far as whatever Black History Month could be. And now in my adulthood, after leaving university... Now everything, and I would say I've kind of had this brain expansion over the last maybe two years, mainly due to Twitter and Mm. being exposed to people all over the place on Twitter who are sharing articles or they're doing tweet threads about things that are happening in Sudan or things that are happening in New Orleans and learning about different stuff. And coming across different artists, especially Canadian folks or mm-hmm. historians who I had never known of before, who are doing work especially with Black Canadian history mm-hmm. and learning about different things that happened here that I never knew happened here because I was never taught. I didn't know where to find the resources to teach me about it, but different artists like Camille Turner, um, Naomi Moyer is another one, are doing amazing work with Black Canadian history. So reading, I don't know those names. And you know what? I so like I don't know. Yeah, those names. It's I don't even know how. I can't remember how I found Camille. I think somebody tweeted about uh, about one of her exhibits, and she does. It's like kind of a performance art exhibit called Afrofuturist, I believe. Oh, and that sounds familiar, actually. Actually, yeah, yeah. But so you might, on. yeah, you might yeah, have come across I, it. Yeah. And she's doing some things, I think, this month okay. for Black History Month. So you might have seen her stuff come across. But I think somebody else shared about her project, and I was like, "Oh, this sounds interesting. Let me see what this is." And it was a whole piece about 
Newfoundland specifically and Newfoundland, how um, the province before it was technically a province, before mm-hmm. it was part of the um, Confederation. But Newfoundland's economy was very much tied to the Caribbean slave trade mm-hmm. through rum? fish. Is it rum? Okay. No, oh. yeah, through fish. Okay, okay. So being Jamaican, I love my ackee and saltfish. <laughs> and that's like our national dish. Yeah. We love it. We're so proud of it. Learning that saltfish came into play in the Caribbean because plantation owners didn't want to use any plot of land to grow food for their slaves. They would have rather get some cheap food shipped in from somewhere else, give that, call it a day. So um, codfish was known as a good source of protein. Mm -hmm. So there was a plan between, you know, exporters, so like people in Newfoundland and in Nova Scotia, Mm -hmm. and the plantation owners to say, send us your cheap scraps of codfish. Mm -hmm. We don't need the good stuff because it's just for the slaves. But send us your cheap scraps of codfish, Mm -hmm. and we can use that as a protein source for our workers. And then they'll be able to eat food to keep them going, keep them strong, and we're not paying a whole ton of money for some right. like good food. So that's how saltfish got embedded into the Caribbean diet. Hmm. And knowing that Newfoundland, as far as what I learned from Camille's work, but seeing the com- how complicit Canada was in that, mm-hmm. because you knew what that was going for, and you were okay with getting paid off of that yeah. because you don't you're not worried about enslaved people in Jamaica and Trinidad no. and wherever why did I think rum was the know. is there is rum in the history there I you know what it must be I don't know that's something yeah. I'll probably have to research anyway I, yeah. I can find out myself. there'll be something yeah. about rum for sure yeah. but yeah so something like that I never knew about right and when we think about Canada and we think about our you know the kind of the world history of enslavement and Canada's role, we always hear about the Underground Railroad and mm-hmm. how Canada was, you know, freedom and all that great stuff. And that's part of the story. But learning about Camille's art, I was like, wow, we made money off of this. Mm. So we were just as involved, let alone finding out about, because I think I went down a rabbit hole when I was starting to do some of the research into Camille's work. Mm-hmm. And then finding out about our own history of enslavement, that Olivier Lejeune, I think, was the first... Canadian slave, a six-year-old boy that I think was brought from Madagascar to Canada. And he was the first documented enslaved person in Canada. And there was enslavement all throughout. Peter Street, actually downtown, Mm -hmm. is named after a man named Peter Russell, Mm -hmm. who, you know, rich, I think he was British, but kind of rich man who came to Upper Canada or whatever it was called at the time. And he had tons of slaves. And he had a slave named... Peggy Pompadour. And what a name. Yeah, I love it. Her, she had a son named Jupiter. I'm like, I just, I love it. <laughs> and the site where the King Edward Hotel is downtown on King Street used yeah. to be a jail. And that's the jail that they would put slaves in when they caught them trying to run away. So Peggy would always end up in the jail because she, she was, was always, always trying to run away. She was always trying to run away from Peter Russell. And they called it, oh, I can't remember the term that they had for it, but there was a term where it was basically, if you have a slave that's causing trouble and they keep running away and we have to keep jailing them, we're going to call it this term. So there's actually Hmm. things that you can find, like old postings of missing slave, ran away from Peter Russell's care, all that kind of stuff, because people were trying to track her down and they'd find her and they'd throw her in the jail where the King Edward Hotel is. So I'm learning about stuff like that. Then I'm like... Peter Street, like there used to be a popping club down there that yeah. I'd be, I'm like, <laughs> I'd be at the club not 
Do we like fluid around there? No, I can't remember. Gosh. No, fluid yeah. wasn't on Peter. Anyway. But I, you know that zone, yes, right? I, of, so course, it's like, of course. I totally yeah. know what you mean. So, so to learn that's the history of mm-hmm. that area and passing the King Edward Hotel one day and being like, wow, after I had already kind of read this stuff and thinking about what the history of that is. Mm-hmm. And then Naomi Moyer, I found her because she was, uh, they did a feature of her in Huffington Post. And she's another amazing artist who does um, like screens and different things highlighting black Canadian women throughout mm-hmm. history. So they kind of ran down the different women she's featured in the different groups. And I was like, I've never heard of any of these women, whether they were in Toronto, whether they're in Nova Scotia, whether they were in BC, who like, there were so many women that I'd never heard of. Mm. And so finding these people through social media and learning about their work and then taking the time to kind of Google and do my own research and find things that I can read more on and realizing Okay, now I'm educating myself because I never learned any of this. And it's like, why is all of this history so hidden? I mean, we can talk about why it is, but, uh, you know, just trying to figure that out and to delve into some of that stuff so I can educate myself and then pass on that education to other people who maybe will talk about how great Canada is compared to the U.S. or how our histories are so different and we're so much more luckier up here and and there's ways that we can talk about that and debate that. But if you don't know about the things that have happened here, and we talk a lot about the different injustices and all the stuff that have come up and come across for Indigenous people, and we still don't even know the full details of that. But there's a lot of people, Black people included. I didn't know a lot of this stuff like five years ago. And I'm learning about mm-hmm. different things that have happened here in Canada. And What's great to me is like is that you are ingesting all this information and mm-hmm. you're really good at giving your opinion on it, which is, I think, why people are really getting to see you and why you would be on The National, which is amazing. Which is great. Yeah. 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 And so, but I'm also interested to know how you got here because your background is in healthcare. So, (laughs) like, what happened for you to go from healthcare to here? So, my parents, and they're they're great. They're They're very supportive, but you tell, you know, your mom and dad who immigrated to Canada from Jamaica that you want to be a writer. No, you don't do that. You get a good job that's going to pay your bills and you'll be able to live on your own and you'll be able to take care of yourself. And, you know, that's something steady. That's being a nurse or that's being a teacher or mm-hmm. that's being a doctor. And my dad's still waiting for me to go back to med school. I'm like, Interesting. It's not, yeah. it's not happening. So, so my other love was health. And mm-hmm. that was an inspiration through my mom, who's a nurse. So I thought, OK, so writing is more of like a fun thing. But the serious thing is oh something that's going to give me a classic. good job. Classic story. Classic. classic. Right? So, you know, go through high school, get into university, decide to do health sciences. Mm-hmm. And I don't regret it because I really did love it. So that was kind of the train I went on. And so I finished university and then I was I got in, into kind of like a social work stream where I was working at an agency for adults with brain injury and supervising group homes and community programs and mm. kind of really got into that stream of working with people with disabilities and and uh, on a supervisory level. So this was about five years ago. I was working at the agency with adults with brain injury. And it was, it was very stressful. Mm. It was very stressful. And I took work home a lot. So what does that mean? So with the people I worked with, they have acquired brain injuries. So these are people who were in a car accident Mm -hmm. or fell. These are not people who were born with a condition that 
created their brain injury. So talking to some of the people who I worked with, some of our clients and the people we supported and hearing their stories about what their life was like before. And then all of a sudden it changed because they were walking across the street and they got hit by a car or they fell down the stairs or, you know, whatever, anything that like something that could happen to anybody. And I would just bring like I would just carry that. And I would just come home and... You mean the emotional stuff would be yeah, weighing on you? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. The emotional stuff. Um, and just constantly thinking about it, constantly thinking about what am I doing with my life? Because what if I get hit by a car tomorrow mm. and I, you know, I have a five-minute memory span or I can't speak anymore or, you know, what am I doing with my life? So then I started feeling a lot of pressure on, am I living my best life? Am I you know, right. doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my time here? Because you never know when that might change or that might end. And at the time I was like, that's my job. I can't change my job. So that it's going to be what it's going to be. But let me find something. So when I come home from work, I'm doing something totally different. And that for me was, I love to write. Let me get back to writing. Mm-hmm. So I started my blog, 83 to Infinity, not expecting to even share it with anybody, but it just felt like something good for me to come home after work and stop thinking about work and write about natural hair or write about Beyonce's latest music video Mm -hmm. or just write about whatever Mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with work and that could just be my own little space. So I started doing that. The dreams calmed down. Great. The grinding teeth kind of calmed down. Oh, good. So I was like, okay, I kind of feel that balance. So then, you know, I kind of started sharing some of my posts with some friends and they started sharing it with people and people started reading it. And it started becoming a thing where people were like, you haven't posted in a week. Where is your post? I'm waiting for your next post. And I'm like, wow, I actually have kind of an audience. Mm -hmm. So started, you know, getting regular with the blogging. And then the big step for me was sharing it on Twitter. I could share it on Facebook with like my friends and family, but sharing it on Twitter where people can rip things apart and they don't know you and whatever. It's like the world, really. Exactly, exactly. But that was the biggest step for me because that really opened up doors for other people to kind of see my work and see what I was doing. So Mm -hmm. then I had editors from like amazing online publications saying, hey, found your blog post. Think you're a great writer. Would you like to write something for our publication? To which you said, yes, of course. Of course, yeah, because I'm like, wow, now I can write something for somebody else. And then you're telling me you're paying me? Like, thank you. I will take that. (laughs) You're listening to Media Girlfriends with me, Nanaba Duncan. And this episode is with the freelance writer and blogger, B. Kwame. After getting more exposure from her blog, B started putting together events to talk about working as a Black professional in Canada. And they included people like Arissa Cox, who hosts Big Brother Canada. And Arissa talked about her employer asking her to straighten her hair, to straighten her big, beautiful afro, to which she said no. But you can look up the story. It's amazing. Anyway, things were going well for B, but this next part is the story of how her work life and her life outside of work had a major clash. So what happened was I was working at the agency with adults with brain injury. So I was working in my healthcare, my social work, and I had started my blog some months before. And But something just told me, just don't share that at work. Keep that separate. That has nothing to do with work. You don't talk about work. That's just for you. So I left it that way. And I remember one day my boss calls me into his office and he, and he was great. I loved my boss. And he goes, I have a really dumb question to ask you. And I said, Okay, sure. And uh, he goes, do you have a blog? And it kind of threw me off because I'd never spoken about it. But I know my pictures are on there. So I'm like, if he happened to see it, I'm not going to lie and say it's not me. So I said, yeah, I do. 
And he kind of shook his head. And he's like, this is so ridiculous, but I just have to let you know. And he pushed a stack of papers across the desk to me. And I looked at them and realized it was every blog post I had written had been printed out and things were highlighted. So I'm looking at this like, why am I, why is this here? Yeah, what's happening? What was highlighted? Well, what was highlighted were passages that whoever found it felt were problematic. So they went through the trouble of printing off my entire blog and going through each post and highlighting things that they didn't agree with. And the things they didn't agree with were posts that I wrote about, about growing up in London and wanting my hair like my white friends and now embracing my natural beauty and realizing I don't have to chase a European standard of beauty to be beautiful. That was highlighted as problematic. Mm. Uh, Posts about police brutality and an article I had written about Trayvon Martin and I said something where if the races of the perpetrator and victim were reversed, this would have gone totally differently. That was highlighted. Mm -hmm. It was, it seemed like it was Anything that amplified blackness, mm-hmm. even though it's not in my mind state to downplay anybody else. Right. I'm just amplifying <laughs> what I know to be amazing and beautiful and special and, and wonderful true. and true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it was anything that kind of did that, this person found problematic. So the way my boss explained it was he didn't know who actually did it, but that person brought it to the executive director of our agency And the executive director brought it to my boss and allegedly said, did you know you have a racist working on your team? And gave him the stack of papers. So my boss and I had a really good conversation because I'm like, okay, am I about to get fired? Like, what's happening? Like, I don't understand because somebody found it. The executive director is apparently calling me a racist. I'm sitting here in my boss's office. I don't know what's happening. So you must be feeling very... I I thought I was going to, like, throw up on the table because I was like... The blog's not paying my bills. This so you job were is caught off guard totally. and feeling like perhaps you might lose your job because of doing something that you loved. Exactly. Exactly. And my boss and I had a really great conversation. He's also uh, another man of color in, in management. So mm. he was speaking to me about some of the experiences he had had, at, you know, working there and things I needed to watch out for because I was still relatively new. And he said, you know what, I've got your back on this. Let me let me deal with this for you. You don't worry about it. Because he said, you don't talk about work, do you? I said, no. And he goes, do you do it at work on work time? I was like, no, I do this when I go home and on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, so we have nothing more to discuss. He goes, I just need you to be aware of what's happening. He goes, I'll deal with it. They ended up firing him a week <gasps> later. Because of this? That was the straw on the camel's back. So what they told us was he wasn't a good fit, but he had been at the agency for like seven, eight years. That's bullshit. Talking to him later. I'm sorry. Oh, it was total bullshit. And and speaking to him after he had left, he said, because I had asked him a few times, we texted and I'm checking up on him and seeing how he's doing. And I said, it was me, wasn't it? Like, that's what happened. It was my situation. And he would say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Then we had a good conversation one day and he said, it was that. And it was because... He was expected to discipline me. And he said, what am I disciplining her for? Why are we talking about this? Why is this here? Why are you not concerned about why another coworker is taking their time? Did you ask if they used, you know, office supplies to print this and highlight this? Or are you not concerned that somebody's taking their time on their weekend to do this and bring Mm -hmm. this into work when it has nothing to do with work? So his pushback to say, I'm not doing anything about this. And you guys need to fix yourselves. Because why are we treating people this way? He said that was basically what happened. And he was let go and he's like, but I'm in a much better place. Everything's great. Don't worry about it. He's like, you just take care of yourself because Mm -hmm. you need to do what you need to do. And at the time, 
like I said, my blog wasn't paying my bills. That was what I was doing for fun. My job was paying my bills. So I, I stopped writing for a few weeks because I was like, I don't, I, I can't afford to mess this up. Yeah. And, but, you know, missing it and feeling like this was a part of me and I wasn't doing anything wrong. And I said, I'm going to go back to it. I'm going to dust it off. I'm going to start writing again. Mm-hmm. But what it did for me was remind me that not just the fact of, okay, there's going to be people who disagree with what you have to say. Like, that's been my experience. People disagree when they see me somewhere before I even open up my mouth. Hmm. But before I hit publish, now I kind of have, my my gradient used to be like, am I okay if my mom reads this? Hmm. Then the gradient became, am I okay if I get called into my boss's office and I'm faced with being fired or explaining myself or what have you? Yeah. Am I prepared to deal with that when I hit publish? Mm -hmm. So I was able to kind of filter things. And it what it did for me was it really strengthened my belief in my voice. Because Mm -hmm. I continued to publish things that were challenging and controversial and ways I feel about whatever's happening in the world, knowing that if it comes down to, you know, somebody with some type of power coming down on me and saying, explain yourself for this. We think this is wrong. Explain why you did it. I can back up everything. And that's been like, I don't know if you know that NeNe Leakes gif from, uh, it was like Real Housewives of Atlanta, like a reunion show. And I can't remember what happened, but there's this gif of NeNe Leakes. And she's like, I said what I, I said. said. I've seen that one. Yeah, like that's been, like that's become my life. That's become my life. Like stand by your word. Mm-hmm. If it's controversial or, you know, if it's challenging status quo or if you're challenging somebody in power, Say, you said what you said. So say it. So I don't say things frivolously anymore. I don't know if I ever really did Mm -hmm. so much. So So you went back to to writing that. I totally went back. Yeah. 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 I totally went back. And did you leave that place of work? I did end up leaving it. I didn't leave as quickly as I wanted to. Yeah. But I did end up leaving and felt amazing. But I still had this dual identity because after being burnt there, I was like, I'm damn sure never telling anybody about that extracurricular. I'll tell you about my volunteer work, (laughs) you know, women's shelter. And I'll tell you about all. I'm not telling you that I know anything about Twitter. Right. Or no, I'm not talking about all that. So it really kept me guarded as I tried to continue my career in healthcare to say, don't let anybody know about this because you don't want anybody else to have anything to Mm -hmm. do and get in the way with that. But then what started to change was when I started doing TV. And getting opportunities to be on TV. Mm. And it's like, okay, now it's my face, like my real face yeah. and my voice is out there. And I remember I did, I was asked to be on an episode of The Agenda on TVO. Yeah. They were, you know, doing a whole feature on millennials. And so they wanted this whole discussion with millennials and post-secondary education. So that was, that was okay. That was tame enough. And then there was another episode of The Agenda that I did about women in media because of my big mouth on Twitter where (laughs) I was – Steve Pakin, and he's a great guy, and we've had really good conversations. But he had written something that I didn't agree with about his thoughts on why they don't have gender parity on The Agenda because women make too many excuses about why they can't be on TV. I remember that. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember that. And it was like their hair is not done. Or they don't have childcare. Men never complain about that. So that's why we always have men. And I remember just going off on Twitter, breaking it down. Steve. Yeah. 
So producers start like DMing me, like, can you can you email me your thoughts? Yeah. Can you just flesh this out a bit? You know what you're saying is great, and we want to capture. And I sent novels of emails to producers, like I'm pissed off. So let me tell you why I'm pissed. And then the next day, I remember one of the producers emailed me back and was like, "We're going to be taping a show on this tomorrow. Are you available to come on?" And it was so funny because the first thing I remember saying to my husband was, "Like." I had braids in and they were growing out. And I was like, but my hair. And he's so like, Steve was right. <laughs> but I still did it. I though. know, I know, I know. I'm going like, to slap a headband on it and call it a day. And we're going to show up at the agenda and say what we got to say. So it was just funny because it was like, that was kind of my first thought. But I was like, you know what? That's not going to stop me, though. No, no, no. I'll go there with my fuzzy edges and we'll also, talk about it. Also, I actually it. take issue with that. I'm not sure. A, mm-hmm. Like, really, a person said that they're not going to come on the show because they didn't have the correct hairstyle. I just yeah. I just don't know that many people who would Who would not, do that? Or, yeah. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> I feel like because there were discussions that we've had where men don't understand when women in media place themselves in the forefront a lot of, if you look at YouTube comments and all that kind of stuff, it's not even talking about what the woman is saying. It's picking apart, is she too fat? Does she have too much gray hair? Mm-hmm. Is she this? Is she that? And so I think maybe what had happened with him before is there has, you know, there have been discussions about offering opportunities to women and maybe women are vocalizing some of those concerns. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, see, women don't want to come on because they got to get their roots done. And it's like, oh my God. let's just chill a bit. Yeah. Let's just relax. Yeah. And then talking about the childcare thing, what can you do to alleviate that? Don't blame me. Like, I know the child is my responsibility, but if you really want something, if you really want this gender parity, and if you really want these women experts to be able to come on the show, how are you making it accessible? So yeah. figure that out too. You yeah. got work too. So anyways, <laughs> doing stuff like that. So it made you more visible. More visible and nothing really. I mean, I'd have coworkers who'd be like, hey, I think I saw you on TV. And I'd be like, I can't lie. It's me. Yeah, you're like, yeah, you yeah, did. Uh-huh. Exactly. Okay, so, like, let's move on. Yeah. Like, okay, did so you, you come to the meeting? Exactly. Like, let's not talk about it. Yeah, it was me. Okay, we're but done. But what's great is that now that you you have all this stuff and you're now in a job where all yeah. of that matters and all of exactly. it is celebrated and it's wonderful. Exactly. So I saw a uh, something that you put on Facebook recently that mm-hmm. I want to just uh, yeah. end this whole uh, conversation on. Yeah. You said on February 12th, uh, I see the vision. When you stop paying attention to noise, you catch the messages meant for you. Mm-hmm. What was that about? So that was about, um, it fit for a couple different things. But what really drove that when I thought to write about it was, I feel like I'm going through another transition in my career. And even though, like, we've kind of talked about how I had that dual identity and Now it's kind of merged and it's okay for me to talk about doing the national at work. And it's okay for me to share about writing something for the Globe and Mail. It's okay in this position now where I'm at. But there have been things that have made me feel like those opportunities that I'm getting are separating me from doing my job. Because I feel people make comments sometimes like, Whoa, you're big time. You were on the national. You're too big for us. And I'm like, no, but I like my job. Mm. Like, I, I want to stay. I, I like to be here. Or, um, oh, you've written for the Globe and Mail? That's amazing. You know, we just have you doing stuff for our little newsletter. And it's like, but no, I, I like it, though. I like it. That's just my extra. Yeah. And even though I've been open about it from day one, from from the interview process, 
there are these things that make me feel like people are like, she's not sticking around. So, you know, let's not put all our eggs in, in that basket. Because as in they may not support you as much in some way? Or... I, feel, I feel that. Right. I feel they that. They feel like you've got one foot out the door. Exactly. Do you? I feel like that's where the transition is coming. I yeah. wouldn't say that before because I'm a true tourist that I love my stability. Mm-hmm. I love my paycheck every two weeks. I love <laughs> knowing my schedule and this is what I'm doing. And, okay, I can fit in all these other things in work and family and all that kind of stuff. But And right now I like what I'm doing. I okay. like it. But these other great opportunities are coming up, and I'm not going to deny those, and I'm not going to say no, but I think there was something that happened that day where there was just kind of this still, this this collision between like the nine to five work and kind of what I call my CEO of B Enterprises work, all the other stuff that I do, mm-hmm. and just feeling like... I'm I'm getting to where I'm supposed to be. I don't know what that is yet. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm getting there. You feel like you're getting close to the thing that you're yeah. supposed to be doing. Yeah, I, I feel I know that like, you know, the big thing is coming. Oh, that's such a and great place. I know yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's scary because I feel like it's going to take me away from that stability and that security that I've always wanted. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that big thing is coming. And it's like, okay, when I wrote that, I was like, I'm acknowledging it. I'm acknowledging it and I'm acknowledging the fact that for so long I've been worried about and not having full faith in myself because I love that that regular paycheck and knowing that that's coming and I can pay my mortgage and I can do whatever. And but my mom is such a she's totally done like a 180. She didn't understand why I would really blog and what that was all about. Now she's like I don't know when she became my agent, but, you know, I tell her I'm doing speaking engagements or different things. How much they're paying you? Yeah. How much money? That's the, they, they need to pay you more than that. Don't they know who you are? I'm like, can you calm down? So, you know, so she is she's totally changed her mindset now where she's seeing the benefit of doing what your dream is and doing what your passion is mm-hmm. and and seeing how that can open doors. So she's always kind of in my ear like. Oh, you know, you're going you're gonna to take over the national. You're going to be the host. I'm like, Mom, I did one segment. <laughs> I did one segment. And that's something that's I been amazing. I love your mom. That is, is beautiful. The perception people have about yes, things. Yes. She's like, oh, girl, you're about to be on TV every night. I can't wait to tell my coworkers. Like, don't tell them anything. That's not how, like, we didn't have that discussion. So I think when I wrote that, it was just this idea of seeing that. I'm kind of in this other phase of growth and mm-hmm. this other phase of really evolving in my career and doing however it takes shape, doing the work that I feel I'm meant to do and sharing the things that I'm meant to share. So and it feels scary, but it feels like it's going to be the right thing. So whatever it is, however it plays out, it's like, OK, I'm acknowledging you. I, I see that you're coming. Nice. And I'm, I'm kind of letting you know I'm ready. I'm dropping off all the worry. I'm dropping off all the concern. Good. I'm trying to at least. Good. And I'm I'm ready. Well, so. I say congratulations to you. Thank you. I think that is wonderful. Thank and speaking you. of like um, big things, um, mm. tell me about something that you're doing at the end of the month, at the end of February. End of February. So I am actually going to be at CBC. And... I am going to be the social media host for a huge event. I'm still getting all of the details, but a huge event um, celebrating a project called Her Story in Black that was kind of commissioned by Emily Mills. I know amazing. her. Yes, amazing, <laughs> phenomenal woman. And um, 
I'm going to get her in this. Uh, she needs to. She, she needs, needs to, to be here. She needs to, she's got some good things to share. So she had commissioned this whole fabulous photo shoot of amazing women, um, mainly Toronto-based black women who are doing incredible things. And we don't hear their stories all the time. And we don't know about you know, the blood, sweat and tears of what they're putting into their work and what it's doing for the communities that they're part of. So with the different dates she had, I wasn't able to actually be in the photo shoot, but she's partnering with CBC to make this a grand thing. It's not just going to be pictures unveiled on Facebook. Yeah, I've heard about it. It's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal. I'm really excited. I think she's got people like Julie Black performing. She's got um, DJ Mel Boogie is going to be there. It's going to be an amazing thing from the very little that I know about it so far because I know she's working on all the fine details. Yeah, and she doesn't do things really small. No, she does not do things small. <laughs> and I think this is getting bigger than she thought, but I'm it's so the way it needs to be. I'm so excited. So for yeah. people who are not physically there because it's going to be invite only and mm-hmm. some select people who get to win tickets, I'll be managing the social media. So folks who are at home are able to tune in and see what's going on mm-hmm. and be part of kind of the whole celebration and get to know some of the women that are going to be there. And Great. So I'm really excited to kind of finish the month with that. So where can uh, people follow you? So, yeah. So B-Kwami is pretty much everything. B-E-E, just like a bumblebee. Q-U-A-M-M-I-E, which is a name that I used to laugh at. And then I married my husband. And I was like, okay, I'm going to yeah, use well, that as Kwame my alias. Yeah, well, Kwame is a serious name in Ghana. And it I is. Know that, so. It is. It's a very serious name. Very, <laughs> and I know that from when I meet people who are like, Kwame? Hold on. And I'm like, okay, we'll talk it out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so B Kwame on Twitter, on Instagram, B Kwame Media on Facebook, and my website is bkwame.com. So you can find, just Google B Kwame, you'll find me. And we'll definitely um, look at at B Kwame for the herstory yes. party. That was B Kwame. She's a freelance writer and a blogger with a full-time job at an Ontario health company. That was our conversation about how her thoughts around Black History Month have changed and how her career has changed. That story about someone at work printing out every single one of her blog posts and calling her a racist is just wild to me. I have no idea how I would have handled that, but... B stuck to her passion, and now it's part of her full-time job. I think that takes work, and I think it takes guts, so congrats to her. I have a request for you. This podcast is about my girlfriends who work in the media, but eventually I'm going to run out of girlfriends, so I need to make new ones. If you are a woman who works in media with a great story, or if you know one, please let me know. You can send me a suggestion on Twitter, at MediaGFS, and then we can take it from there. Media Girlfriends is produced by me, Nanaba Duncan. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can find me on Twitter at MediaGFS, and the hashtag is MediaGirlfriends. Girlfriends.